and welcome to the Weekly Witch, brought to you by TwoSalem.com, the home for all things Salem history, Halloween witchcraft, and more. This show features interviews and updates from Salem, the world of the esoteric, fiction, film, and many other areas, all aimed at developing a deeper, richer connection with the spooky, witchy, and divine. My name's Joel, now let's get weird, witches. Today's guest is, whether he knows it or not, in many ways responsible for my love of Salem, Massachusetts. On my second trip to Salem, after I had already been thoroughly enchanted with the place, I picked up a copy of A Season with the Witch, The Magic and Mayhem of Halloween in Salem, Massachusetts, by some guy named J.W. Oker. It only took a few chapters before I could not put that book down. The premise is basically that J.W. so loves Salem that he decides to relocate his entire family there for the month of October back in 2015. While J.W. readily admits to taking the job to toy with his long-held desire to live in Salem, the early pages of the book leave the reader feeling a deeper search beginning to emerge. Salem is irreconcilable in so many wildly interesting ways, and J.W. is the first author I came across who beautifully imparted this city's paradoxical character. Reading Season with the Witch deepened my connection with the place, its history, and its many contradictions. Not so long after, I met J.W. at a book signing in Sleepy Hollow, and after about a half hour or so of conversation, what had been up to that point a once-in-a-while endeavor of making YouTube videos exploring Salem, Massachusetts, became an all-consuming path. Also out of that meeting, I became an avid fan of his entire body of work. Some of the writing that you'll hear referenced in this episode, in addition to Season with the Witch, are Twelve Nights at Broader House, a contemporary horror novel tracking an atheistic travel writer who comes face to face with nightmarish disintegrations of his materialistic reality in the titular haunted house. Poe Land, The Hallowed Haunts of Edgar Allan Poe, a travel book covering the strange life of Edgar Allan Poe by visiting various sites connected to the writer along the East Coast. The New England Grimpendium, a New England travel spook fest featuring nearly 200 macabre, grim, and ghastly sites, and the blog that started it all, oddthingsivesseen.com, colloquially referred to as Otis, wherein you can find many accounts of JW's travels, thoughts, and information about his upcoming work via articles, a podcast, videos, and more. It is an absolute no-brainer that J.W. Oker would be the man I'd ask to inaugurate the Weekly Witch podcast, and thankfully, he agreed. Our conversation covers the state of horror, film, and fiction today, J.W.'s own feelings about the paranormal, how he got into his peculiar and fascinating line of work, and much more. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with J.W. Oker. I'm going to start with something I legitimately want to know about you as someone who's followed you for a few years now and read a bunch of your books. Um, and that is, have you ever had a paranormal experience? <laughs> Not a single one, man. And I, and I have stayed overnight at abandoned uh, prisons and gone to abandoned hospitals and asylums, spent the night at sit spent nights at cemeteries, been to all the big haunted houses. I've been everywhere. And I don't even have like, and this is what really depresses me. I don't even really have like a story that I could exaggerate into a cool paranormal story. I just don't have any of that. So 
unless you want to count like my Christian upbringing. I had a few uh, spiritual experiences there, but I guess, but no, I've never had anything paranormal happen. Spiritual uh, in, in sort of like a, made you suspect that there was something beyond the materialist framework kind of spiritual? Oh yeah, well, I mean, just just my belief that uh, once upon a time I believed that there was like all kinds of stuff going on in the other. Um, but yeah, I just but it, as an adult, just nothing, nothing. And I'm mm. bummed about it. I'm not even like a skeptic about it. I'm not like a preacher being like, "There's nothing that doesn't exist" because I don't know anything. It just never happened for me. <laughs> so right. So is it, was was your protagonist in Rotterhouse kind of kind of uh, based off of you in that way, sort of desirous of uh, desiring to to prove yourself wrong in a way? Do you find yourself Looking That's exactly right. Did you nailed it? That's exactly right. In fact, that one the one ghost story he told about himself around the um the intercom button or whatever, that was a true story in my life that happened. So oh. that was the closest oh. I ever got to freaking myself out with a ghost. <laughs> wow. Uh my you live in Vermont, right? Are you in Vermont or New Hampshire? New Hampshire. New Hampshire. Next, next state right. over. That's right. Uh the only I've had, I think mm, two paranormal experiences in my life and one of them happened in the in the vermont's in the triangle oh uh, the bennington triangle yes in the bennington <laughs> triangle that just happened like earlier this year uh legitimately terrifying have you spent a lot of time around there uh i do i i, I actually vermont i've been to vermont and i realized so usually i get to all six new england states over the course of the year multiple times and i realized that last year i didn't get to vermont one single time as the only state i didn't hit but usually I'm trying to get to Vermont as often as possible. Amazing state. And I've driven around that area, the triangle, and I visited sites. I've never done like anything somebody would call um, penetrative. I've never like really tried to get deep into the, the triangle and really test it. But I've been all around it, definitely, and, and love the stories around it. Great stories, man. I'm, I'm surprised yeah. there's not a bunch of fiction that's come out of that place, actually, because it's so eerie. Yeah, I think they just somebody just made a documentary about it last year. I want to say, um, so I think it's starting to get a little bit more prominence. Yeah, I thought about you um, when I was out there at the uh, the place that the haunting of Hill House is based on. The house. Have you been there to that place? The the one on uh, the one at the college campus. Yeah. Yes. Yes, I have. Hmm? Oh, I gotta check out. Is that on Otis? Have you done something on Otis on that? I think it is on Otis. Yeah, the Bennington. Uh, no, no, that's the, we start with the Bennington Triangle, but it's like uh, it's the music music department of that of the college over there where she near where she lived in vermont yeah yeah very creepy place so so oh, yeah, did, beautiful did you grow up in sort of a, a creepy environment a weird environment or, or, or where do you think this attraction of uh to the strange and the weird came from for you it's a good question I, I mean i had a pretty like pretty you know vanilla in a good way vanilla upbringing um i definitely had the propensities as a child toward monster stuff you know whatever like Chewbacca was my favorite Star Wars character and like I had monsters all the time and Godzilla's but I also grew up fundamentalist Christian so really kind of really strict well probably really strict compared to everybody else but not strict compared to fundamentalist Christians probably but pretty strict environment so you know we didn't watch horror movies and stuff but we did watch movies we just didn't watch horror movies um so it's I don't know I don't know how it happened it was just gradually I always just always pulled that way there's some, some part of me always wanted that and then at some point, I just kind of like, I think there was some point when I got comfortable enough with it, I just kind of went after it. So there's no, I don't know, I don't know when the, uh, when the changeover went from not really caring too much about it to only caring about it was, I think it must have been around college, but you know, I, it, it was, it was pretty great. It just stuck up on me. And one day I was like, oh, 
this is what I, this is actually who I am. So I should probably do this now. <laughs> right. So did you start writing uh, once you'd sort of made that transition into uh, fan of the weird, fan of, of of horror? Did you start writing horror fiction first, or were you more starting in sort of the Otis vein, travel blog, that sort of thing? No, I started trying to write fiction um, probably right out of college. It was. It was um, yeah, it was definitely horror, but it was very Christian influence as well, because I stayed in the Christian world for probably mm, 25, 26, 27 years, went to a Christian college, all that kind of stuff. Um, so it was very tinged with that, but which which is a pretty rich mythology. I mean, the demons and creatures, all kinds of stuff in there. Um, so I that's probably what it was more tilted toward. And then uh, about probably around the year 2000, I, had, I did my first website with a friend, and that just opened me up to nonfiction. I think it was... It was um, Toy Fair magazine. Do you? I don't know if you remember Toy Fair magazine. Mm -hmm. It was a it was a magazine dedicated to toys. This is this is right about when like adult toy collecting kind of took off. Like we all all of us grew up, you know, influenced by the '80s and all those kind of toys that happened. And then somewhere around the into the '90s, we were all old enough to buy whatever we wanted to. And eBay was around, and suddenly we could get access to everything. And there was a magazine put out by Wizard, the comic the comic magazine, called Toy Fair, and it was all about toys. And the way they talked in their nonfiction, it was like right to you. It was not even, it was, I'd never, I, I was like a English major, so I'd read tons of nonfiction, but the way this toy magazine talked was like directly at you. Like you felt like you were sitting with the author right beside them. And I was like, man, that's actually the way to write. I'm, I gotta stop writing like a college essayist and that's how I gotta write. And then when I started writing for the internet, that's exactly how the internet sounds. It, to this day, the internet sounds like that. Um, so I think it was the internet really kind of showing me you just you just talk with your hand <laughs> with, with your typing. <laughs> that should be the when you write your uh, your on writing. That should be the title of it. <laughs> you just talk with your hands. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, on the subject of nonfiction, I was introduced to you through that book right there, uh, mm -hmm. "Season with the Witch," um, and it it I came across this book. After my second trip to Salem, um, which happened oh somewhere in the neighborhood of six years ago or so, so I went once. I I grew up in the South, also in a very Christian upbringing, um, fundamentalist Christian upbringing. Where and in I the never, South? In Tennessee. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, where about where are you a New Englander originally? No, so I grew up in Maryland. Uh, my wife grew up in, she's from Alabama, grew up in mostly in Virginia, but from Alabama. My Half my family's from Virginia, so I got, I got like deep Virginia, like like borderline Tennessee, Virginia, like Pulaski area, that kind of stuff. So oh, wow. I definitely have a lot of the South around me. Wow, wow. So, so I never thought I was going to get out of the South. <laughs> and it was just sort of like by random happenstance that, that uh, happenstance that I did. And uh so I go to Salem, I'm absolutely enchanted, but I have to be there very, very quickly and then leave. And it's like four weeks before Halloween. And I don't get to go back until like six months later in the total off season, I think it was like March. And I pick up your book and uh, I was totally enchanted with the writing style. And, and I did definitely feel like I was being spoken directly to in that book and feel that way with, with most of your work. But something I was curious about when I was reading it, and still I'm kind of curious about it today, is where did your love of Salem come from? What's the first time you went there? And, 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 and sort of at what point did you realize that you needed to do a deep examination like you did in this book? Oh, that's a good question. I, that's a good question. And there's definitely, there's definitely a through line. So right, so right about, I started really re, you know, going to oddities and writing about oddities for the, for the web and when I was living in Maryland and... Virginia. I lived in Virginia for about three years after Maryland. 
And, you know, I was trying to figure out where to find oddities, what to do. And I always heard about Salem. It was like a faraway place in my head. And like, but I was like, oh, that's, that whole city counts as an oddity, right? If I go, I can go there and write an article about it. So I had friends in New England uh, that I met in college. And I want to say about, I, I always get this wrong because like the early 2000s are a little bit of a blur for me. But sometime in the early 2000s, I did a solo road trip up, up to New England. And on the way, it was, the first, it was my first time going to Sleepy Hollow. It was my first time going to Salem all in one trip. It was the same, same, as, same as you where well, I didn't stay there for days. I stayed there for probably hours. And, um, and I saw a few other things on the way. And so it, it stuck with me. I was like, man, this is kind of cool. This is exactly the feeling I want. You know, this, this it was, I, I think it was, I can't remember. I think it was definitely early October or September or something like that. And the feeling was there. Exactly that feeling you're looking for from fall of Salem was there just walking down the streets. I don't think I did a single, I, don't, I might not have done a single attraction. I barely went into any shops. I kind of just walked around and like, oh, this is Salem. Um, and then you know, never left me. And then the second time I went to Salem was probably about seven or eight years later, maybe yeah, five or six years later. Uh, I just met my wife who was, you know, at the time, just my girlfriend. And we did a New England road trip. So we were still in Maryland, Virginia and um did a trip i took her there we spent a lot more time there than we than i did by myself and then we moved to new england so <laughs> once we moved to new england that we moved to new england probably the next year actually i think we got engaged next year moved the next year all that kind of stuff 2008 we moved up here and um now i was 40 miles from salem suddenly suddenly i was 40 miles from salem so i started going every fall then i started going every fall and summer and then i started going like once a season and that whole time, though, I was a little bit, and you can read some of my early writings about Salem are still on Otis. I was very trepidatious. I, I couldn't figure out what I thought of Salem. Was Salem extremely cheesy and exploitive? Or was it some? Was it cool? Like Part of me liked it, but part of me felt guilty for liking it. And I couldn't figure out which one uh, I should land on. So I was always very like careful in my writings not to like pick a side. And then the more we went to it, that became a Halloween tradition for us. Right, so every year we'd go into in, in October, and we made Halloween was becoming bigger and bigger and bigger for us, and you know it was a huge part of it. And became soon became soon became a centerpiece of it. And then I had just finished uh, Poland, which was my book before Season with the Witch, and didn't have another another idea for a project. I had an option from the publisher that wanted my to look at my next project, but I didn't know what it was. And Poland was rough. I had to travel to a lot of places for Poland, like all over the East Coast and across you know, across to London. And it was really rough on us. And my previous two books were that was a lot of traveling, mostly road trips, but a lot of traveling. So I wanted to, I still wanted to do travel fic nonfiction. I still wanted to do that, but I wanted to do it in a way that I didn't have to travel. So, you know, I just remember laying there on the bed and be like, oh, Salem, Salem. What if I found a way to move to Salem for October? And then I'm doing a travel log, but I'm only 40 miles away and I'm just renting a house in there. So I'm not actually like on planes every time or nine hour road trips, nothing like that. And that's what it was. And then the book is what really kind of formulated my hundred percent, my feelings around Salem. So that was a big, that was a big change for me that month in October that I lived there and writing that book and interviewing people and thinking about it is really what, you know, as writing does coalesce my thoughts finally into, this is what I believe about Salem. This is what my feelings are toward it. And this is, you know, this is, I'm, I'm going to love the city for the rest of my life. So that, that's kind of like the long answer to your question, I guess. <laughs> so have your, have your feelings changed um, at all since the book came out? Um, and where no. are you today? No, you're still no, the same still place? love it. I, you know, I miss living there. I, um, we actually got really close to buying a house after we lived there for the month. We, we enjoyed it so much. 
I think at the end of the day, we just decided not to. <laughs> I don't know. There's no good reason. We just decided not to. It was a big, big step. Um, but man, I miss my time there. I look back on it. I, st- I mean, I mean, I still go. I'm still going there probably once a season at least. Um, sometimes more than that, depending on if people are in town or if you know events are happening. And I think, I think everything I wrote in that book is still true about my feelings, but also objectively about Salem. It, it's it definitely has changed. It's definitely has changed since the book in the four or five years, but not substantially as far as like the ideas around it. So no, I still love that place. I still kind of, I still, I still have the conflict about it. I'm still a little conflicted about it, but I love the conflict now. I think the conflict is really what I love and what makes Salem Salem. So no, I, I, I still understand Sam behind that book. I still love Salem. You know, if I haven't gone to Salem in a few months, I start thinking about it and be like, man, how do I get, how do I get the family back to Salem? (laughs) (laughs) I know exactly what you mean. I, I, I've come to this weird place where lately I find myself, and this is a weird, I don't know why this was so hard for me to get to, but I've, I've finally gotten there just being outwardly cool with Halloween being a commercial enterprise. (laughs) I I don't know because I've always loved horror movies. I've, I've, you know, grew up as a kid, I, my sisters, my older sisters showed me Nightmare on Elm Street one when I was five. Um, so this stuff's deep, deep in my bones. But for some reason, it's only in the last like two years. And I, I think your book was definitely part of that where I'm like, you know what? It's okay if this is a little commercial and cheesy and, and tongue in cheek, as long as there's some sort of foundation that has deeper access to other things, if people want it, um, I'm cool with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, how, and Halloween's that way in general. Like, we, we always we always talk about, well, usually people talk about the crass commercialization of Christmas, right? Uh, whereas Halloween doesn't have the moral baggage around it, <laughs> you know? So it, it feels less it feels less weird to go. We, we, we make an event out of shopping at Halloween, right? Even if we're not buying anything, we go see the stores. What's in the stores? What's in the stores? You, see, you start seeing on the socials, too, where they're like, in July, people are shopping for Halloween. But there's no moral baggage. It's not like there's no like, no, Jesus is the reason for the season or, you know, whatever peace on earth, goodwill toward men is the reason for the season or whatever it is. Halloween gets around all that. It doesn't moralize. It doesn't preach. It's just like, hey, life is spooky. You're going to die. Go buy a <laughs> pumpkin scented candle at Yankee. <laughs> just, just do it. <laughs> so we get around that. There, there's definitely a point where you're like, um, if too, I, I definitely get to a point where too many people are celebrating it around me. I get a little bit like, hmm. But I'm I'm, with, I'm, way that, I'm that way about everything. Like the stuff I love the most, too many people around me loving it too. I'm just like, oh, maybe I, I <laughs> take a step back for a little while. Right. Which, which is where Halloween is right now. It's huge now. I can't believe how much how big Halloween is now. But yeah, I'm with you on that. It, it's, it's, it's such a cool thing. Because again, the commercialization is only a slice of it. There's a million other slices. Right, right. Did you come across uh, in, in your time in Salem, this is going a little bit into book territory but uh people should read it if you're watching this read this book it's fantastic um so did you come across any sort of tension between the pagan slash wiccan community and uh the commercialization of halloween and commercialization of salem in general um i'm gonna say no to that one there's definitely some tensions between the um the kind of more um uh, a new age kind of religious people in in salem toward other things but I think the commercialization, they're mostly fine with. I mean, every single one of them owns a shop or a mm-hmm. fortune telling business or a herb. You know, they all, they do have a business in Salem. All those witches have, which have um, businesses in Salem. The part of the commercialization they don't like, I think, is just all of it falling under the image of an ugly crone on a broom. That's mm-hmm. the part that they, they're really uncomfortable with and, and they hate. Um, but the actual 
selling stuff they're all for. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so let's, this may be a Salem question. It may be something related to uh, other Otis things. Um, what's the scariest place you've ever been to? Ooh, scariest place. I have a, I have a stock answer for this where like the, the places I, and I'll skip it for you for your sake, but the places I get the <laughs> most scared are in my own house, just wherever I live, you know, if I'm alone at night and I've watched a horror movie and sure. I'll start hearing voices in the fan and that kind of stuff. But as far, and, and usually when I'm chasing scary stuff, I'm looking for it. So there's this like, there's this like shield between me and the actual like primal scare that's not there. Cause I'm hoping something happens so I can write about it. Like, mm-hmm. The scared I get, the better the article will be. But um, I think the scariest, one of the scariest places I went to, it probably had a lot to do with the context. Um, there is, oh man, I, just, I just left my head. There's an asylum in Western New York called, um, what is the name of that asylum? Let's here, we'll look it up. Yeah, it's, it's, a phone in, the device. New, it's in the New, New, New York book, but it's a pretty famous one. Um, but it was while I was writing the New England, the New York compendium, sorry, the New York compendium. And I made an appointment to see it. And the person that owned it was by themselves and nobody was around. It wasn't in the city. It was on the middle of a cornfield, basically, and it was snowing. And the two of us walked that entire empty asylum. And it, it was, it was freaky. It was like, it was middle of the day. It wasn't even at night. It was like the daytime. It was overcast, obviously, because it was snowing. But man, just walk, that was the closest I've been to walking around by myself in a giant abandoned place with nothing, nothing to help me. I, mean, I was with, you know, a, a person who wasn't you know, couldn't protect me either so it was it was weird to like just be walking around realizing i was eight hours from my house i didn't have a hotel for the night i was just wandering around asylum and if i disappeared off the face of the planet or scared myself into oblivion it nobody would care or know um <laughs> what is the name of that asylum? That's is it is, is it uh utica no it's not utica it's uh because utica you can't um tour that's a, still like a government building i've been that's a that's a cool one this is um hold on we're on the internet right? yeah go for it rolling hills that's it. Bingo. There it is. Rolling Hills Asylum. Really what? creepy. I mean, again, it has a lot to do with context. There's, there's really no reason it's creepier than, say, uh, Moundsville Penitentiary in uh, West Virginia, which I've stayed the night at as well. But just the context of being alone there. That, that's what you need to be really terrified is being alone, I think, anywhere. <laughs> what is, so when you're going to these places, yeah, what what is it that you're hoping for? Like, it, it, it is it that you want some sort of that you just like being afraid you just like creepy or is there something deeper going on when you're going to these these scary places i think there's a few levels i think one is purely aesthetic like you said i like creepy and i love that you know one of the peeling walls and the the knowledge that this is 200 years old and at one point in time lobotomies happened here and all kinds of bad bad stuff happened here so i like the aesthetic just wandering a creepy hall hallway of an asylum at night but i am looking for an experience i'm looking for some and it doesn't i don't technically mean a paranormal experience. I mean some kind of, and not an epiphany either, but I just want an experience. I want to see an angle on the world that I haven't seen yet. And you don't get that usually when you're just going to the store or you're doing your regular routine. It's only when you break your routines that you can get to see that new angle. And (laughs) going to a abandoned asylum is definitely not my everyday. So that (laughs) is what I'm looking for is something not everyday. I always always talk about it as, as something standing out from the everyday static of life. And, and, that just just gives you a more round view of the world, which is what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a more round view of the world, um, which is almost impossible to get on any given on even get any given day. But if you see the extreme parts of the world, like even the abandoned asylums and the prisons and stuff, you can get a little bit rounder on your uh, your view of the world. Also yeah. a little bit more depressed, but that's part of rounding out your view. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
I feel that. I, I think that's part of the reason I, I go to Salem as much as I do. Uh, and also part of the reason I don't think I could ever move there is because this is my, me and my wife's big fear about moving to Salem. We both love it and both would love to be there and, you know, could see raising kids there and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But our big fear is that moving there somehow takes away what's magical about it because it's, it, it's so accessible. Um, yeah, that's a that's a legit fear. I I think that's very true. And I, I thought about that myself because moving even moving to New England was was me and my wife trying to grab at grab at that. Fortunately, New, New England's huge, so <laughs> I don't have to worry about it too much. Uh, or at least you know I I don't live in all of New England. But yeah, that is a, a legit problem. And I run that too as an oddity chaser. You know, how many times have I seen a cemetery? You know, at some point am I is it becoming not as valuable for that purpose anymore. How, and how often am I, am, am, how often is the weird my normal? That terrifies me a little bit. That's definitely mm. like an issue. Have you ever run into uh, a like diminishing returns point with that where you go to a place and you're like, yeah, it's creepy, but you just can't. <laughs> yeah, no, hundred uh, percent. You could probably think about it. You're a horror movie fan, right? So yeah. you probably think in terms of that, you remember when you first started watching horror movies, maybe your five-year-old experience when you were watching uh, NOES, um, it's, it's, you're, you, you realize, well, you don't, you, you're thinking, you don't trust the director. Suddenly you're like, oh, these kind of movies exist. I don't even know what's going to happen next. What I don't trust you watch Texas Chainsaw for the first time. You're like, what <laughs> movies can do this. So then your entire life as an adult horror movie fan is chasing that same feeling and you rarely get it. And you watch, you'll watch the worst movies hoping to find it. Um, but that's kind of how I am with oddities. It can happen that way. I mean, fortunately, I, what what hap, how it comes out with me usually is I'll, I'll pick something on the map to go see and then usually it's Lindsay my wife will call me out on it she's like are you actually interested in seeing that or are you just trying to add another oddity or find something to write about and I'll be like uh oh no you're right I have zero interest in actually seeing this I just got so in the habit of finding something different that I'm just gonna be wrote about it and she's like, no and then we back off and like no find something you really really want to see and we'll go see that but it, 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 you, it's so weird that you can make the the abnormal mundane it's really uh oh god awful, that might that's know? like the most depressing thing i've heard it is no it's <laughs> a, a horrible thing <laughs> but unfortunately we can balance it out right so you know you have, the, you have your day job and you have all these other fortunately there's a ton of mundane to go around right <laughs> so there's a lot of mundane stuff in your life so ho- hopefully it's like not as um like i always think about it in terms of like Guillermo del toro or those kind of guys who, who live weird lives they're you got cool houses full of weird stuff and their job is to make weird stuff and they're making weird stuff all the time. I always wonder like, man, is that guy bored? <laughs> or is he still like, like he still comes off childlike and excited, but is he deep down? Is he still, is he chasing something, you know? So it's, it's again, it's like, I don't know, like being rich. Like if you're rich, you suddenly don't care about money and then everything's boring or something. I don't know. I'm not rich. So I don't know. But <laughs> yeah, that, that's definitely it. But that, that's, that's the beauty of oddity hunting is that there's always something new. There's always something different. Um, there's I, I get surprised every single day by what I didn't know about and what, what actually exists in the world. Like, how, how does this thing, that's my biggest question I'm always saying to myself is, how does this thing exist, A, and B, how did I go 40 years without ever hearing about it? This thing is the weirdest thing on the planet. i would never heard about this. People aren't telling me about this on day seven out of the womb that this thing exists. So the world can, the world completely surprising you. So it's but it's good. It's the same thing as the horror movies. You're still constantly watching horror movies, waiting for it to happen. And sometimes it happens. Most of the time it doesn't. But when it does happen, it's magic. Right. Yeah. That's a fantastic answer. Um, so cursed objects. Let's see. Full title is cursed objects: strange but true stories of the world's most 
infamous items there we go yes. <laughs> it's coming out uh september 15th is that right mm -hmm. yep yep and it's sure available it for pre-order now uh can you tell me a little bit about your history with with cursed objects do you own any and um have you ever had anything especially interesting slash creepy happen with the cursed objects you've been around and or own so so um Cursed objects before the before this book project, which took about a year, year and a half to do, I never really thought about them that much. Uh, I definitely had visited a lot of them. I'd been to collections before, people and paranormal investigators who had them. They were just kind of a, I don't even know if I'd call them a category uh, of thing um, that I visited. They just, I mean, the Hope Diamond is one of the first things I visited for Otis, just because I lived so close to it back then, and you know, visit visited all the time. I love the Hope Diamond, but I never really thought about it as a concept or as something. To dig deeper into. Um, so when I started the book, and this is one of the rare books for me that I didn't start out of my own motivation. It was actually uh, somebody approached me to do it. A publisher approached me to do it because I knew my history. Um, and turn, you know, it turns out I visited a lot more cursed objects than I realized already <laughs> when I was, trying, I was putting the list together. But um, yeah, um, so in seeing them, um, seeing how they work, it's interesting. Nothing. Again, it's, it goes back to that paranormal story. I, no, I, nothing bad has happened to me as a result of that, that time, at least that I can trace back to a cursed object. Um, but I've handled them. I've been to a million of them. I did buy one, but it's not a famous cursed object. I bought one off eBay because there's a massive eBay trade in cursed objects. It's like if if you want to if if there's one like proof point against the existence of cursed objects, it's that there's <laughs> eBay the, the demand for them. So, so I bought one off eBay. Didn't I, there's a whole story around in the book with that what I did with it and where I took it. But it, 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 I still have it. It's right beside me right now as we're talking. It's it's my one of my mementos of my trips that I have on my shelf. Um, so no, I don't have any good stories personally with cursed objects. Each cursed object I went to and chose for the book has a great story around it and tons of great stories around it. There's like, you know, the Hope Diamond's a good example where the Hope Diamond itself, just the rock, has a great story of where it started, all the countries it went through, all the royalty it went through, where it ended up in America, the capital of the United States. And then all the people who owned it all have great stories tied to it. But um, I didn't get any cursed. <laughs> I didn't get cursed. I know of. I mean, I, I guess bad stuff has happened to me. I didn't rec recognize that, but <laughs> no good cursed object stories for me <laughs> that um, aren't mine. <laughs> how do you authenticate a cursed object uh, on, on eBay? Is there a process for that or is it just, you know? No, and this is the biggest. Because this is the biggest problem with cursed objects for me, is that um, it's it, you can't authenticate it, right? It's a it's it's a sale, and then there's a lot of paranormalists out there, paranormal investigators who collect them and who talk about them, and who do specials about them and shows about them, and they don't. I mean, it's it's like there's it's even less technological than ghost hunting. You know, ghost hunting is at least you know tr pulled a bunch of technology to itself, at least tried to make a system out of it. It's very haphazard and. There's no scientific method behind it or anything, but at least they've tried to systematize it somewhat. Cursed objects, there's no system for it at all. Um, and I'm not sure why that is. I think it's because, actually, I think it's because it's just not cool. I think cursed objects have not been cool for a long time. Like there's a reason why we have an entire entertainment industry around ghost hunting, whereas we don't have that around cursed objects. They haven't been cool. And I think, I think I don't, I'm not sure why that is. I think part of it is because you know, a cursed object is a thing. You gotta, you know, you, it, that proof is right there. If you have, if you have it in your hand, you know, it, it, it's a, it's something has to happen around it, or it's not cursed. But yeah, I would love for that to happen. If there's some kind of like, uh, some kind of test for it, or some kind of like <laughs> minimum um, viable thing. The way I did it, the way I chose the cursed object was a number of stories connected to it. And the older the cursed object, the better for that. 
and then also kind of where it ended up. So a lot of a lot of cursed objects ended up in in um, museums, um, and are are there only because of the stories. So the, not the Hope Diamond; it's there because it's a bazillion dollars and old and whatever. But like the Busby Stoop chair, is just a chair uh, over in England. Uh, it, it, it curses anybody who sits in it dies. It was cursed by a murderer who was then hung uh, outside the bar where the where the chair was. And then he was uh, tarred and his body just put on display afterwards. Just his corpse just hung there outside the bar. And then um, the, the chair got donated to a local museum and they nailed it to a wall, halfway up the wall. Uh, so nobody could ever sit in it. <laughs> but, then, but again, that'd be the proof, right? If they actually put it down and made a hundred people sit in it. Um, but even then, the thing is in the, in the, in the defense of cursed objects, Cursed objects aren't guns. Every time you shoot one, you don't hurt somebody. It's very selective and can be random. And if even if it's randomly, even if it's very random, it still can be a cursed object. It's not like a, it's not a definite thing that everybody that touches, say, um, a King Tut artifact is going to die. Uh, it doesn't doesn't mean it's not cursed. It just means whatever you didn't you you didn't fall prey to. It. It's like a virus. It, not to bring up like current events, but like whatever not all of us not all of us get sick when the flu season happens but some right. of us do it's kind of like that that kind of thing right i've i've stolen a cursed object I'm oh ashamed. yeah yeah i'm ashamed I to say that's, that's yeah rule number one of what not to do with cursed objects i know <laughs> i'm looking for uh have you i'm sure you've heard of the bell witch at some yes, point yes in tennessee oh that's right you're from tennessee yeah i'm from tennessee so the first uh i did a lot of acting and uh film in a previous life and uh my first movie that I was ever in, I was in high school, and it was a Bell Witch movie. Um, and I played a character named Joshua Gardner in this movie. And as part of the was research, it, movie? it yeah. like, was it American Haunting? No, not the Donald Sutherland. Donald Sutherland. Oh, okay. It came out like two years before that. Um, There's not a lot of movies based around that. I think Bell Witch is like no. more obscure than it should be. I know. And I, it started, I have noticed that it's starting to get more traction lately. I'm not sure why. I know uh, a couple podcasts have covered it, but um, yeah. It's been on my list to see since the beginning of Otis. It was, it was like when I started my original list of Otis stuff that I thought I could get to. And back, the, back, the, back in those days, I was, a lot, I was a lot closer to Tennessee. It was right on there. I wanted to see the cave. I wanted to see the reproduced cabin, but I interrupted your story. You were, no, you're no, it's totally cool. Uh, I, I, I mean, I haven't, I haven't been uh, in probably a decade or so now, but um Back when I was a youngin and went, you could stay overnight. You could like pay extra to do this overnight trip in in the cave and camp out inside the cave. Um, But one of the two paranormal trip, two paranormal experiences I had was in the Bell Cave. And um, I'll send this to you someday if if you want to hear it. Uh, Me and my buddy Chris went to the Bell Cave and one of the things I've I've done the tour probably three or four times now, and one of the things they they said on every single tour that I did of the cave was, they tell some variants of the story, you know, people take rocks from these this cave and they always mail it back because they're <laughs> cursed, <laughs> and uh, so I just I had to take one, and yeah. uh, unfortunately nothing came of the rock stealing, but the first time I went. Me and my buddy Chris were there, and this is early 2000s, and we have uh, a, a digital, or no, not digital, an analog tape recorder, and we're recording everything because, like, you know, Fear was on MTV, and yes. Blair Witch just come out, and, like, 
being a ghost hunter was the new hotness. So we were. <laughs> I remember those days so vividly. So they vividly. were great. They were great. Um, so we had this recorder and the cave is broken into, I think, three main chambers. It might just be two, but my memory, it's three. And the, the, the most inner one has this giant rock formation called Eagle, Eagle Rock or Eagle Head Rock, something like that. And uh, back in that chamber, there's water running and uh, it's, it's pretty, you know, it sounds like a cave. So we're, we're in there with a tour group and during the tour, nothing happens. But on the drive home, Chris's mom is driving us back to the town that I'm from. And we're listening to the tape that we recorded. And uh, in, in the tape, which my memory says was new, I could be wrong about that. In my memory, it was a new tape. Um, we're in that back room and we're listening to it. And the tour guide's doing their spiel and you hear the water rustling and everything. And then all, the, 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 all of the audio from the cavern just goes away. And there's just silence on this tape and then there's whispering and it sounds like a female voice. And each of the three of us, me, my buddy Chris and his mom, all interpreted it in different ways, what it was trying to say. And then the audio just came back up uh, as if nothing had occurred. And that is, the, that is one of the two. I still have the rock. I was looking for it somewhere around here. So I may be cursed, but I highly recommend the Bell Cave. You'd love it, man. I mean, I tell, I'm telling you, it's definitely one of the things I wanted to see so bad. But that, I write about that in the Cursed Objects book. There's a few, there's a, there's a, like a series of like, they're mostly national parks that had that same situation. Uh, I think it's the Petrified Forest. I think the um, uh, Urubu or however it's pronounced in, in Australia and um, Hawaii even. There's a bunch of places where like, if you take the rocks, you know, they're constantly getting rocks mailed back to them because they're not allowed to take the rocks. You take it, bad stuff happens. They try to get rid of it by mailing the rocks back with an apology. So it's a legit, it's a legit phenomenon. At least the, um, you know, taking the rock, something bad happening and mailing it up back. It's happened so many times. It's so strange. I mean, because there, there's, you know, trying to think about, this may be an avenue just to go down with you in general. You watched Hellier, right? I think I saw something on Otis about Hellier. I did. I've seen the first season and a half. Yeah. Yeah. So, what do you think about this idea that like, I don't know if they ever explicitly say it in Hellier, but it's definitely the way they structured that show. And this is, you know, kind of the dialogue in paranormal esoteric circles in the past few years lately. Anyway, this, this idea that, that there's something about the paranormal that resists material explanation, resists like the, the ability to prove it scientifically uh, because it is so personal, you know, because how do you prove a synchronicity, right? The, the the number of variables you would have to track across time would would be massive. And then even if you did, the synchronicity only has meaning because you're the one perceiving it, you know? Yeah. What do you think about this idea that they kind of play with in Hellier as someone who's who's explored a lot of odd things and haunted places and, and, and written fantastically scary stories and, uh, you know, thousands of places you've been to do you think there's any any weight to this this idea that that maybe this world is something that that resists or at the least resists uh being provable and maybe at at the most actually can't be provable through normal scientific means yeah so i have two takes on this I, i'm glad you brought this up because i've never i haven't talked to very many people about hellier um so i think it's two things right i think one is and this will be the skeptical take i'll give you that one first 
Um, so there, obviously you've heard of Occam's razor, right? Where you every you take away every every possible explanation and you end up with the explanation, no matter how weird it is. Sure. Seems to me that the paranormal communities are doing the opposite of that, right? So they when when whatever after decade 10 of no snapshots of Bigfoot and no ghosts, despite everybody having a, a 4K camera in their pocket and despite, you know, uh, now drones are in the air and we can't see a UFO because there's so many drones in the air. Um, they have to get weirder. <laughs> when the weird doesn't explain it, you have to get weirder. And I think that's what's happening. Like uh, you see that with, you know, what if Bigfoot's a ghost? What if Bigfoot is uh, interdimensional being because we can't find hair, you know, that kind of thing. So that's like, a, and I, it's fine. I'm not saying that's a wrong way to go about it. That's just definitely a, a trend I definitely see where you're trying to explain away the lack of evidence. You know, after so many millennia of human existence, at some point we got to decide on this ghost thing, guys. <laughs> you know, we <laughs> one way or the other. So that's what, that's what I kind of see with that whole synchronicity is you can't go weird, go weirder. I don't think they would disagree with that. But the other one is what that synchronicity t is, is to me, it reads a lot. And again, this is from, not even from my experience doing creepy stuff, it's from my experience as a Christian. It reads a lot like religion. Um, that's exactly how we would talk about faith in God. You cannot prove it physically. It's very personal. You can't, you know, if, if somebody came up to our church and said, God doesn't exist. Show me proof right now. We'd be like, no. <laughs> and it wouldn't change the belief in God. It would be like, no, that's not how it works. Um, hmm. So it's, it's very close to what religion has been doing forever. So I don't know if, if, if the paranormal community is going through th that kind of phase or cycle, but, um, and then one day they'll end up organized and <laughs> whatever, <laughs> and buildings and stuff. But I, th that's what I always think of. And I think, those, think of those two things, which to me are just, they're too vague. I still, I still want Bigfoot to be, cognizable and ghosts to be cognizable and weird stuff to be cognizable um there is like uh, there is i mean honestly there is a, a level of truth to we don't, we have no idea how reality works zero idea how it works i mean we have like over a million physicists and theoreticians on it every single day and we still don't know how it works don't know the shape of the universe or the shape whatever all that stuff so there is definitely a legit idea that man this everything could be so much different than we realize it and the paranormal is just a um just a peek into that. We get a little peek. We have no idea what it is. Somebody stepped across, you know, the room and you have no idea. But that's legit, but it's really kind of theoretical and fanciful. And if that's true, then it's almost like, don't search for it. Just go about mm -hmm. your life, you know, earn your living, get a family, read your books, watch your movies. And if it happens to you, great. If it doesn't, then it's, it's not going to happen to you. So it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting path. I think that Hellier takes people down and like uh, people and people at that, at that phase of whatever, the paranormal is, is super super worth talking about because I don't know I don't know if, if like the Newkirks uh, would agree with that take or not or if you know because I almost say I almost say that this is a paranormal documentary that accidentally is anti-paranormal hmm. um, I don't know if they would agree with me or fight me on that but I kind of think that's true like I, I just kind of think that's true well the place it's not bad I, I, I love that idea too I love that idea yeah. too so it's a really I, cool I'm not on it at all the place that they sort of end up um in season two, not to spoil anything for you, but uh, they're playing with this idea that that their investigation in total is something that they're being manipulated to do for ritualistic ends by higher forces, which reads also to me as very a kind of conspiratorial but i guess that's to be expected but then b that is a little religion-y 
Yeah. <laughs> now that you mention it. <laughs> That's a hundred percent kind of like, again, I probably would never have said that once when I was in religion, but you know, nowadays I would definitely say that for a hundred percent. Yeah. That's straight up. Like he works in mysterious ways, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. We, we work according to God's will, even when we don't know it. And there's, you know, and then there's the bad, the negative side too, where we also in Christianity, I keep saying we, I'm not in it anymore, but I was in it for so long. Um, there's the negative side too, where there's negative forces also kind of impacting your actions, right? So I can definitely see that as working as part of that story. Yeah, maybe that's why that story feels so compelling, um, at least in part, is because it is a very archetypal story, what they're, what they're doing in Hellier. Yeah, I like what the Hellier things, the reason why I never finished season two, because I don't know, I, I, they never, I think the first couple episodes, they never left their their house or whatever, and I kind of was visually kind of, I was kind of done with it, but um, like, I, I, I like two things, I love the way it's filmed, first off, it's beautifully filmed, I wish more kind of paranormal documentaries had that level of um, fidelity, and two, you're, you can tell they're trying to do, at least do something different, which I super appreciate, like, the modern paranormal documentaries are just so in a hole, um, mm-hmm. And as far as like storytelling and visuals and metaphors. So I really appreciate them trying to do something different with it, even if they end up at the same place. At the end of the day, I have no idea, but I do I do appreciate that about it. Yeah, they definitely end up somewhere different. Like I couldn't imagine Zach Baggins doing Hellier, you know? <laughs> uh, so it definitely goes to a different place, which is interesting. So speaking of sort of current landscapes, um, I, I devoured Rotter House in like two settings. Um, I thought it was so, uh, uh, it was like a sensory bath for me. I, I, I thought that uh, it was very, very, very easy for me to sink into that narrative and not just because it was told from the perspective it was told from, but um, as, as someone who is writing that sort of horror, uh, which I would say is, on teetering between materialist and supernatural. We'll say yes. that about Rotter House. Um, and it's it's playing with horror elements from both of those sorts of genres uh, in, in fantastic fashion. Where are you at in terms of the state of horror fiction today? Like, what are you reading? What's turning you on? Uh, what do you think the future is holding? Who, in, in addition to yourself, of course, who is emerging as sort of like the voices of the time uh, that are really getting you excited? It's a good question, and I, I could probably get myself in trouble with this answer because I'm relatively new to horror fiction for some reason. I grew up reading a lot, but for some reason, and maybe it was my religious upbringing, I only read science fiction and fantasy. I was that's a, that was a huge influence on my life. And then whatever, I'd see Stephen King book, and I'd you know whatever walk away from it because that, that guy's name was actually said in the pulpit. <laughs> to, to oh. So for some reason, even though I was uh, and I and then at some point I got into horror movies big time, big time, big 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 time. Still am. Uh, but for some reason, that didn't translate, and I think this is true of a lot of horror, horror fans, that uh, being a fan of a horror movie didn't translate to horror fiction. Um, and when I started writing Rotterhouse, maybe a little bit before, I really started to try to get into horror fiction. Um, just because it's, hard, it's it's actually hard to get into because, you know, all you hear about is really Stephen King. Uh, even in the horror fiction world, all you hear about Stephen King. It's getting that way in the movie world, too, but... He has such a pervasive influence that you feel like he's the only thing there. Um, these days, I think there is a vanguard of people who are rising. Um, they're all they're all Stephen King influenced, um, but they're all there. I mean, you, you hear a lot about Paul Tremblay, you hear about a lot about Grady Hendrix. Um, 
uh, Alama Katsu, she, she does a lot of historical horror. Um, uh, Gwendolyn Keast, she does a lot of cool stuff. So there is like a vanguard, but it still feels like there's this, most of horror is happening still in the micro indie presses. Um, I'm talking like one person staff putting out horror. Wow. And looking around and trying to find my way there, most of the stuff I was finding was that. Literally, you know, coming out with a book every, you know, three months and being being put out in special presses and stuff. I don't know if there's a direction. The people like um, Grady and Paul and uh, all those and, and Gwendolyn and stuff, they're, they're definitely pushing it very literary, I think. Um, they are almost, Paul and Grady for sure are mainstream. Also, um, Stephen Graham Jones is another one. But they're all really getting close to mainstream if they aren't already. I think Kendrick's just had a book on the New York Times bestseller list with Southern Club for Vampires. Um, and they're all doing great stuff. Um, but what, I, but what, what I'm always looking for, and I think it's the science fiction to me, I'm always looking for something new. Mm. And again, it's the, the greedy part of me. So I'm not, usually the way horror fiction authors go is they do their twists on all the tropes, right? They're like, this is my, um, this is my ghost story. This is my vampire story. This is my werewolf story. This is my uh, apocalypse story. This is my cannibal. They, they do that kind of thing, um, which is cool. I mean, people have come up with amazing stories based on that, but it's rarely what I'm looking for. Um, I'm looking for new monsters for sure. I want new monsters. Um, looking for new horrors. I'm looking for, you know, that kinds of stuff. And my problem was the first horror I ever read was all like the classic stuff. So I, I started with Poe and Lovecraft and those kind of guys. Um, and then skipped to, to whatever, <laughs> whatever three years ago was. But so I, I don't know. I don't know. What the, I don't know if there's a direction horror is going other than it is popular now. Um, it's popular mostly because the movies and that's kind of bringing the literary kind of horror up. But it still feels like, I don't know. I'd still, I still get, I still get a little bit, I still haven't found my bearings in horror fiction. I don't know if there's a direction like there is in the movies. It seems to be a definite trends and stuff you could say about horror movies today. Whereas fiction is a little bit more like, I don't know. I kind of don't know what's going on there, even though I'm trying to figure it out every day, which is good. I mean, I'm a, I'm, it's just a little different. There's lots of, lots of being put out there, but I'm not, I don't know who, who are the ones I love the most modern. I mean, I definitely am starting to really love people who are dead, <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> like dead in the eighties, like not dead Edgar Allan Poe, like, Michael McDowell is one of my favorite writers. Turns out I didn't know this till like a few years ago. Um, uh, Charles Grant also is one of my favorite writers. They're all gone. You know, like people yeah. are gone. Because uh, I'm, I'm late to the party. I'm like behind on everybody. So yeah, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure. Um, but I know that there is, it's definitely a very, um, very, it's, 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 it's a very fresh time. Like a lot of stuff's coming out. It's just a matter of knowing what it means I'm not sure what that is yet. Um, as opposed mm -hmm. to like the horror genre, you can see a little bit of horror. The horror genre in movies is getting um, super polished on one side and super like exciting and new stuff. But at the same time, it's getting mainstream enough where you're like, oh man, horror is not supposed to be winning Oscars. Horror is supposed right. to be the one like making us feel uncomfortable and making us feel, making us not want to see, <laughs> not want to see it, you know? But now it's almost become a cause, which is also a little bit troublesome to me. It's become a cause. Um, you know, we're all horror fans, but like horror genre, I don't know. It's a, I don't know. It's, it's not a cause. It's a, it's a genre. It's not a cause. So it, I, can, I can definitely get my, my uncomfortable spots with horror, but I love it. I'd, I'd live it every single day. And if it went away or if I got bored with it or if I got jaded, I don't know what I would replace it with. Maybe I'd go back to science fiction, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> Romantic comedy. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I haven't got to my romantic comedy phase. <laughs> um, 
So who in who in the world of movies is exciting you these days? What what are you watching? I mean, I I had this similar thing the other night. I was watching Shutter. Oh, I love Shutter. That's where yeah. I love the most these days. I was watching uh, Last Drive-In on yeah. Friday. I'm there. And uh, I sort of had a similar thing where I was I was like watching it and I was tweeting about it. And then this thought came over me because I searched, you know, hit the Last Drive-In hashtag and saw 50,000 yeah. tweets. And I was like, wait, I thought this was a small club. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was hit, hit like number one trending. Like two weeks ago at midnight, it was like the number one trending topic in the wow. U.S. Wow. I was like, man, I remember watching this dude on TNT. I think it was, I was fooling myself, thinking I was the only guy watching him. But obviously, it was on TNT, so you know, you know, following the audience. Do you think we lose something if it's if it's as mainstream as it seems to me? I mean, I think of like Get Out, and I think you know, my reaction to Get Out was different from pretty much all of my friends, which was mm-hmm. you know, all of my friends who were maybe not as as into horror as as I am saw it as this revolutionary groundbreaking film. And I saw it as a very good retelling of a few movies from the seventies, you know, Mm -hmm. a really, really good updating of that, not to take away anything from it. It's brilliant. But I did notice this huge gulf sort of between where uh, me and like some purist (laughs) hip friends of mine were at uh, with that movie and others versus where this sort of populace of horror fans is at. Do you think, do you think we lose something if it, if it becomes, you know, I, I'm thinking of like, uh, uh, oh, what's his name? The guy who did um, um, The Witch and uh, The Lighthouse. Um, oh, uh, Robert Edgars and yeah. uh, the guy who did Hereditary. I'm thinking of those guys who mm-hmm. are doing these super polished art house movies that are becoming like incredibly popular um how do you respond to all that are are you feeling pushback or are you sort of embracing that as like yeah let's do it let's see where this goes yeah it's a hard one like if i saw uh if i saw um if i saw hereditary back in the way i used to watch horror right by myself on a vhs tape or whatever i'd be like man this is revolutionary but and i and it is it's it's an amazing movie i i I really it's a movie i think about pretty often like i I think I, i don't know like the witch is probably a better example for me where i'm like this is pretty masterful. This is the craft and this is pretty amazing, but I'm, I'm going to walk away empty. I know I will. I feel like um, hereditary is less empty. Here's, here's, here's where I get it. Here's where I go. So right now we're like in this lot of content. We've gotten really good at telling stories. A lot of, we have a ton of storytellers. We've polished the, the, the art of storytelling. Uh, so when somebody tells me this, but well, I'm to the point now and somebody tells me this is great and it happened, it's happened in horror. I don't think it's horror. I don't think it's a horror phenomenon. I think it's a content phenomenon. So when somebody comes up to me and tells me this series is great, this movie is great. My first thought is it probably is, and I don't need to see it. <laughs> uh. <laughs> like, I, like I, almost today, I need something more than great. I need something sideways. I need something like I miss. I, I feel like we need more like John Waters, right? We need more people that are a bit more assaultive um, on our tastes and our eyeballs and our comfort level. Um, I feel like that even though we have way more content and way more better movies than we have and better TV shows than we've ever had in our entire lives, um, it, it all feels a little smooth and processed now. And mm. and again, part of that is the media. Part of that is I can literally stream anything. Where back in the day, I had to find it. I had to like get a thousand video club memberships and have cool friends and tape stuff, uh, which I didn't have. But that's what you'd have to do to find the stuff. <laughs> but today, it's like oh, I can see every single Sam Raimi movie. Gone, easy, done. I can. I don't. I've never heard of um, Clive Barker. Oh, 
I just downloaded all of his movies. Now I can become an expert on him in 12 seconds. That in a Wikipedia page. So it's, it, it feels like it's lost something somewhere. That said, you know, you, there, you can definitely find a through line that's profound and great among those movies. It's just, it's just hard. I don't know, the glutted content is just hard. I, I can't imagine like a hereditary without the glutted content. Like that movie I would have thought of, if I just saw that in 1993, I would have thought about that movie and wrote about that movie in my head and on paper for probably years. But today yeah. it's like, all right, great. I saw hereditary. When's the next movie come out? Or who else am I watching next? You just flip to the next movie and you lose that kind of relationship with it. I think that's what it is. I lose that relationship with the movie by it, you know, putting some space with other movies. And I don't know. I, I think I think we're both grappling with the same thing a lot of us are grappling with. We just feel a little bit empty when it comes to storytelling these days. Hmm. Um, and I don't, I just still haven't figured out why. Even though, again, we're the greatest at it ever <laughs> as a culture, as a world. We're the greatest at storytelling, but it still kind of is leaving me empty. And I don't know if it's, again, the amount or I'm looking for something sideways that hasn't happened yet or I haven't found yet. It's probably happening and I haven't found it yet because it's just hard to find stuff because there's so much stuff. But I'm definitely looking for something different than just a great movie with great characters and a great plot that keeps you on the edge of your seat and the production value is exquisite and this is a craftsman fitting pieces together in front of you. Like, uh, we have a lot of that. (laughs) Show me something a little bit more rebellious or something, I'm not sure. Yeah, you know where I'm finding it lately, oddly enough, is in horror documentaries. Like, (laughs) (laughs) I love documentaries. It's like, there's this great one. um, Well, there's two of them on Shudder actually called Haunters and Spookers or something like that. Um, And they're about people who set up haunted houses um, in their backyard. And, and one of the two, I think it's Haunters, is about extreme haunts. Mm. And my dude, uh, that terrified me <laughs> to, <laughs> to see the depths that, that, that because I, I, I get it in a way, you know, I know if I'm in the same situation, if I put a haunted house up in this backyard and I commit myself to saying it's an extreme haunt, I got to get pictures for the gram. I got to get videos on YouTube. I got to make the reactions as massive as they can be so I can get all the attention. I get the thought process, but to see the like maniacal switches go off in these real people's brains and while they're like waterboarding someone who's paid to go to their backyard and get waterboarded, it, it does, it did something different to me. <laughs> like it unsettled me in a place that horror movies haven't un- generally unsettled me for a while. So I wonder if, maybe part of uh, the emergent horror, the thing that is actually scary now is, is, is blurring the line a little bit between, between real and, and not real. Yeah, I've seen, I think there's, I've seen probably seen about six or seven different home haunt documentaries. They're just, they, I will not ever turn one down because I'm with you. I like, I totally get, I love haunted houses, but the dedication to make one is really weird. It's really hard to do. <laughs> Um, especially, I know that extreme one you're talking about, it's the, the wedding singer guy or whatever he was. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yes. That was hard to watch. <laughs> I loved that, man. I've watched it like three times. <laughs> that's, a, that's an interesting observation, though, because I think, yeah, I, I definitely, if there's a if there's a documentary, I will grab that before a movie these days. Um, I just saw that Shudder's releasing that um, Nightmare on Elm Street 2 documentary. can't remember mm-hmm. the name of it, but I'm super pumped for that. Like, I'll watch, I haven't watched a Nightmare on Elm Street movie in probably years. Um but I'm super pumped for that. So I don't know what it is that like I, I'll reach for a doc over. I don't know, maybe it's age. Maybe I'm old. I always think of like when I'm in when I was a kid in the car, dad listened to talk radio all the time. 
and I was bored <laughs> out of my skull. And then here I am, you know, the culture is we're all listening to talk radio and podcasts, basically. But we, at some point you get tired of all the hits on the radio. So you go to talk radio, I guess. Right. <laughs> I don't know if that's what it is, or if it's just that the documentary is, it is a little more punk because you know, anybody can, anybody can make one. You grab a camera, you go find something to like document and, you know, you give your perspective on it. So maybe that, maybe that is what it is. Maybe. How are you finding the podcasting world with the Otis podcast? Are you, are you enjoying doing that? Uh, is it, is it, is the format lending itself well to, to podcasts for you? Uh, yeah, it is. It, it is. Um, I, I like it because I seem to get a lot more response. I can tell the same story on podcasts that I write down and put on Otis and I'll get a better response on the podcast. Actually, I think I do. It's hard to tell because podcast stats are still in the stone age. <laughs> you can't tell who listens to it or how long they listen to it it just you, it got downloaded and maybe it got automatically downloaded who knows so i feel like i get a bigger response from the podcasts on my side though it's hard it's hard to do um i have to i have to be in a certain mind because it's a one-person podcast and i just tell my story i don't it's not like lore where i just find a story and tell it it's you know something i visited something i have an experience with and you know um it's hard. I don't know. It's a, it feels like a performance. And like, even when it's not, it feels like I have to sit down, get this right. And it, I, I've been putting off a pot, the next episode of the podcast for like two weeks, because I know exactly what I'm right. I know exactly what I'm doing, exactly what I'm telling. I just cannot, that, it, that mental effort to put, you know, plop that Yeti down in front of me, hit record on audible and go is not natural for me. I, I think, um, and I, 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 I don't know. I have a hard time doing it. I do, Love it. I love the finished product. And I love, you know, that people seem to react to it. But I don't know. I don't know what it is. It's hard for me to like actually start. <laughs> it takes me like a good three quarters of a martini for me to like, hit that play button you know, or record button. <laughs> well, I'm sure that comes across in quality. You're a little bit more loose. I myself am, <laughs> yeah. am totally plastered at the moment. Exactly. <laughs> I recorded three times without even hitting the button first. Before I realized I haven't turned the microphone on. <laughs> well, man, thank you so much for doing this again. That's all. That's all I got. Um, really, really, really appreciate you coming on. And uh, is there anything else besides cursed objects that you have you have coming up in the near future you want people to know about? Not too much. I mean, I, I would push um, Rotter House. It's only been out for about six months. So definitely if you're into like Haunted House Fiction, pick that up. Cursed Objects is my big one coming up though. And then my next book doesn't come out till the next summer, summer of 2021, but that's a, that's a horror novel for kids is what that one is. Smash oh. Dragon. So that's coming out in the summertime. Um, so next summertime, not the summertime. So that's, that's about it. Where but are you with writing that? Like how far ahead? It's oh, it's done? done? Yeah, it's at the editor. So it, it's it's coming out with, from Harper Collins. They bought they bought two books from me, two kids books from me. Um, that one was they bought that one when after it was already done. Because um, with, with fiction, you have to write the book, then sell it. With nonfiction, you just write the proposal, submit that, and then you and then after they buy it, then you write the book. So that one's done. Um, the I, I haven't started the second book in the contract yet, but what I'm doing right now is I'm writing currently finishing up an adult horror novel that's not sold yet. I, the, the Turner Publishing, the guy, the people that post that uh, published Rotter House, have first look at it, but um, that's that's the book I'm actively writing right now is um, um, is that book which has a title but I'm not sure if I'm ready for it. But it's a uh, it's a uh, probably it's probably cosmic horror if it's a genre of horror. It's definitely horror, but it's probably cosmic horror, and it's set on a Christian campus in Florida in the 1990s because. I went to Christian college in Florida in the 1990s. <laughs> I can't stop writing. I'm just writing about my own life, I guess. But uh, even when I'm writing fiction. So that's that's what I'm working on now is a horror novel. So 
Um, but yeah, check out check out Rotter House and check out um, Cursed Objects up for pre-order. It's definitely uh, my big nonfiction project right now. Thank you for listening to The Weekly Witch. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find out way more at toosalem.com or by checking out the various social platforms that Two Salem is on, which are in order of how frequently they are used, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Thank you again for listening and stay weird, witches. I'll see you next time.